0: Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Simon, and today me and Victor are going to be talking about the shattered canon thing that Dreaming has going on after the beginning of the C20 period in Changeling. So buckle up, it's gonna be weird.
1: Yes it is. Alternate canon. The first thing we really need to talk about is High King David's Return. Man, High King David's Return. It's in the intro to C20. It's never really mentioned or dealt with again. They kind of set up the struggle between the three queens that we talked about in detail before. And when I say kind of set up, I mean like three sentences, maybe. Maybe a whole paragraph. And then they sort of have this light tension And they do, like, a column of text, that is, Seif bursts into court and says, As it was before when we were in a time of need, so it is now. The High King returns. And David walks in, and everyone is shocked, and Faralith throws herself into his arms. And they declare their love for each other, and changelings are overwhelmed by their inability to respond negatively to sappy romance. And then they wander away immediately. That's basically all that happens publicly. And by all that happens publicly, I mean David never shows up publicly or does anything meaningful ever again. I assume they prop him up a little bit, like Weekend at Bernie's, maybe in the throne occasionally. But there's a paragraph that goes into the fact that behind the scenes, he's a broken man and he has nightmares and he's despondent and Faralith can't help him. Dot, dot, dot. Do what you will with that. And then we just move on and do general setting. Like, that is the alternate High King David canon. I think the thing that is most frustrating about this canon is it ends with the line about Lenore still being his heir, at least until he and Faralith have a she-child. Which is just like... Lenore being picked as an heir was an acknowledgement of the fact that changelings don't breed true. And High King David was not picked through lineage because there was a High King before him that he has no relationship to. Like there's this whole setup and then like, bam, we're going to pretend that the she breed true. For a moment, I wanted to make it work. And I was like, is this maybe adoption? Nope, nope. Lenore already lives in the adoption space, really. So this is, I don't know what this is. Of all the alternate canon we're going to talk about in this episode, this is pretty much my least favorite piece. Yeah, Simon, what are your thoughts on High King David's Return?
0: Well, while you were talking about that and I was muted, I was screaming because I forgot about that plot point, and it's really bad. It's kind of continuing the ongoing theme for Dreaming of missed opportunities because bringing david back and bringing david back as a useless puppet basically could have been interesting if they'd kept any of like the window dressing from the earlier descriptions of david's disappearance cuz if they kept the tension between the three queens even if three might be too many you know and all of the different political actors behind them trying to prop them up useless puppet king could have been an interesting plot point i can even imagine a version of this story where the whole like we're going to produce a proper she heir thing is interesting because it's the product of david's bedlam and like he doesn't get how this doesn't work everybody's just kind of like nodding along like oh yeah yeah we're gonna do this this is totally a thing that could be interesting it'd be Kind of tricky to work out, but could be interesting. You've talked a bunch about how, you know, both David and Faralith are atypical members of their houses, and isn't it interesting that when David shows up, Faralith goes into this weird, contrived sappiness in public? I have a hard time disagreeing that it isn't a show, because it seems like a show. And then there's the whole thing with safe and the sword like safe shows up but Caliburn's never mentioned and you know the logical conclusion of that plot somebody showing up with excalibur doesn't happen and the two she who were set up to be you know possible elements of the future king plot conspiracy thing are never mentioned just like so many missed opportunities that It's so disconnected from everything that was set up before. It's hard to see it as anything but kind of a retcon, because even though it's like moving into the future and like some of the threads link up, all of the rest of them are severed.
1: And the thing that I find most interesting and weird is the 20th anniversary's mission statement is to be a love letter. They are not supposed to change the original... Metaplot. And this one really did. You mentioned the Excaliburn angle. That was made very clear at the end of the line in War in Concordia that that was where they were headed. They were ready to seed that. I wouldn't even say foreshadow it. They just come out and say it. And then we just bring the king back. It's... So weird to me, you know, speaking to things that would have made this story interesting if we were to bring him back and pursue the Excalibur thing, you know, if you leave the Urban Renewal League and the brewing war plot or even have David kind of come back in the middle of that war, say the war happened, just follow through war in Concordia and then say David came back. And everyone was like, yay, he's going to stop another war, but he was totally and utterly incapable of it. And he's a puppet king up there, technically giving legitimacy to Feralith to the rest of the traditional she, much as they hate it, but giving no legitimacy to the commoners, who saw how horribly the she fell down on the job once he disappeared— That would really take all those things we said about War Concordia and how it got the game to the point that all the other games had been at from the beginning of having good PC-on-PC level character tension. You know, at a tabletop game, it's probably you against the world, but like it can be you against your peers. It doesn't have to be you against the big bad all the time. And Changeling finally had that. There is the potential here to expand on that in really interesting
0: ways, and they didn't do any of that. It kind of ties into what ends up happening with the parliament because we were just talking about like all of the politics that gives you really interesting player on player or just same power level, same influence level strife happens with the parliament reopening because the high king is back. So obviously after whatever, a decade of parliament being closed due to rampant incompetence and probably sabotage, it just pops up again and everybody's like, yeah, we're going to do this. This is this is legitimate government again. Hooray. We're just going to pretend all the reasons parliament failed don't still apply. Just like we're going to pretend all the reasons for conflict between the different people vying for the throne is over now. And all of the Different organizations, like the Red Branch Knights and everybody else, like, they're just going to go with that because people never get power hungry. There are ways to make it interesting, but they just kind of hand wave all of that. And they're like, nah, Parliament's back. Nah, the King's back. We're good now. The ongoing question of C20, like, why didn't you spend word count on that when you spent word count on certain other things? The thing about all of that is the High King is back,
1: but like why does the Parliament reopen? The Parliament was his brainchild. Most of the other She didn't particularly like it, at least that's what's kind of described in first and second edition. They went along with it, they still had their ruling power, but a lot of she didn't want the commoners to have any say, and they didn't like the compromise. And David is depicted as coming back and being like a nightmare-ridden, empty shell wandering the halls. Having been part of organizations and knowing what goes into making a thing happen, I just have a hard time imagining that David had the political will to reopen the parliament. And so then the question becomes, who did? They're clearly using David's return to justify it in the public story they're building around that action but why? That's a really interesting question. And I wish that there had even been like a small sidebar acknowledgement of people noticing that David didn't really do this. So why are we open again? Like, mm, what's going on? But I never saw anything really done with that.
0: And that gets into one of the weird rewrites for Parliament, because as it was set up in mostly 2nd edition. Parliament is a political body. It has the force of law because it's a political body, but all of its decrees have to be adopted and ratified by the kingdoms underneath Parliament. It's sort of like the UN. It's mostly optional. And then in C20, and I think it's especially in the C20 Player's Guide, they get into this weird Parliament-is-backed-by-the-force-of-the-dreaming thing. People just show up at Parliament when they need to, rather than having to travel across the country to get to it. And Parliament sometimes rejects duly elected officials, and it enforces decorum on itself. And it's answering the question, like, how did Parliament reopen if David couldn't do it? But it's answering it in the least interesting and most hand-wavy way possible. The Dreaming did it. So
1: we should probably get down to the specifics of of what changed, what was there before and what's there now. In 1st and 2nd edition, the Parliament of Dreams was in Terranar, which is the capital of the Kingdom of Apples. That's where it was centered. It may have been in the Dreaming in as much as any great freehold protrudes into the Dreaming, But it was never described as being more in the Dreaming than that. And then in the C20's Player's Guide, which admittedly straight up says this is alternate canon. We wanted to just think about other possibilities, use it or don't. So there's some honesty there that there is not an attempt to recreate what already existed. But they make it a shining crystal castle in the Dreaming that doesn't have any physical location connected with it. And whenever someone is elected to the parliament, they just find a door that leads them there from wherever they are. And they do a couple weird things that are a little bit hard to track in this rewrite. So there's the whole thing about the doors just opening when you're chosen for parliament. But occasionally the Dreaming will reject someone, basically telling the people that elected them, I'm presuming normally the local lords. Well, not the local lords. You get a seat per house, which I'll get to. That's a rewrite as well. So the she within the house that have chosen their representative, you chose wrong. That's kind of a weird the dreaming is picking for you thing. Each great house has a seat. And they explicitly say that it hasn't happened in a long time, but when great houses rise and fall, seats appear and disappear. That does a really weird thing because they trace that directly back to pre-interregnum. And they say everyone thinks the Parliament of Dreams is this modern invention of David. But it's not. It goes back previously. It's from before. And, you know, Houses Rise and Fall, they describe these cosmological things that are not centered in America at all. They, like, still say David did it. And they just never mention Europe at all. Like, they never say it's not in Europe. They never acknowledge any of the political entities that are in Europe. And if you don't read really, really carefully, the tone really lends itself to, this is a global phenomenon. Because, like, every kingdom just has a door that goes to the Parliament of Dreams. We don't explicitly say it's global, but we don't say it's in America either. Eh? Eh? About face? And All of that combined with there's still a clear story of the parliament having failed while David was gone. And now, like, David's back, but he's broken. So if the Dreaming is reopening the parliament, that really undercuts the question mark, is David even really still legitimate high king, by basically saying, yes, the Dreaming says so. Because we're saying the parliament being open, is the Dreaming saying so? Like, it... (sighs) It honestly feels like the design principle of this meta was we want to create all the artifacts for the game that anyone might want to use and just like create the list and let the meta plot details sort themselves out later. Like that's very much how it feels. What are your thoughts on
0: all of that design? It feels to me a lot like the C20, C20 player's guide ethos towards dreaming is more dreaming as a Chronicles of Darkness product versus dreaming as a World of Darkness product. Like, everything about the way they've structured the story in those two books feels very, like, take what you want. Anything's possible. Which, okay, I don't hate that as a design philosophy, but it's not why I'm here for World of Darkness. Like, i'm here for world of darkness because it has a cogent ish meta plot you know just the whole like people getting seats in parliament changes in such a fundamental way in this version of it because before it was something like every freehold that has more than 15 named members creates a seat in parliament and they can send whoever they want. It doesn't have to be the freeholder. In fact, close to the end of Parliament, people were sending people they didn't like because all of the commoners were expecting another knight of iron knives. It's just the whole disconnect between what was and what was created for the C20 era is very... It's hard for me to deal with, I guess, is what I'm going to say.
1: It's very difficult. To grapple with. I will say I like a lot of the stuff in the politics section. I think again speaking to the Chronicles of Darkness design approach I think there are interesting things you can pluck but it doesn't stand up as a story on its own even though it uses story to glue its pieces together and it's it just makes it kind of hard process. And I think it really depends on how you run your games. Because I personally run games that are small and local, but very much live in the metaplot. I have my powerful NPCs motivated by not necessarily being directly tied to metaplot events. Like, as an example, I just started running a Victorian mage game that's set six years after the Albertan reorganization, and we're in the Wild West. So I specifically picked a moment in time from the meta that represents a very specific thing. It's an order of reason game. And I set the game somewhere where that reorganization has absolutely not been implemented. Six years after the Great Exhibition in London, you're not going to have... <laughs> implementation on the far reaches so are the characters tied to those like major movers and shakers absolutely not is the metaplot influential on their lives every moment does it define the story i'm telling even though that story is intensely local absolutely and that's how our lives work we are influenced by major elections by shifts that are happening in the world yeah, we still get up, get dressed, go to work, whatever. But the day-to-day realities do shift. Our cultural lens and how we relate to other people shift based on the metaplot of our real world lives. And I think telling stories like that is the strength of the world of darkness. It's not always done elegantly. It's hard to grab. And you have to have players that know enough about that plot that messaging it is meaningful. But if you have all that, it's super exciting and I love it. And that's what I look for. Like, that's my gauge of success when I pick up a World of Darkness book. And so when we get into like alternate meta, I have to do some major reconstructive surgery to get the political C20 alternate meta to that place. And I wish I didn't
0: have to. It's just so strange that dreaming has this problem because you know, it's a game about sweeping cultural influences, basically. Like, all of the characters are physically incarnated stories. I mean, the she are the dream of ruling. Boggins are whatever it is they are. But, like, there's all of this stuff that is, like, almost infinitely reinterpretable, but at the core, you know, you have, like, a one-sentence description of what each of these kith is, and it's almost always the dream of this and what does that mean in this cultural context and the dreaming should like constantly be having these little revolutions where it's like you know the dream of rulership went from this thing to this thing therefore there are she on both sides of that the dream of whatever homemaking looks like changes over time and in america that goes from being a communal thing to being a very isolating thing for a lot of people as time passes. Like, what does that do to Boggins? It never happens. (laughs) It never happens in Dreaming, and instead we get these weird, like, massive political things that are all buried in a King Arthur feudalism plot that has about as much relationship to everybody's life in the game as people who treat politics as a team sport tend to think politics affects people's lives. Some of the other things that
1: happened with the Parliament of Dreams, because there are some other differences as well. One of the big ones is in the closing of Parliament. So David disappears, Parliament basically falls apart, because without him there to order everyone around and say, do your work, nothing gets done. And they introduce this organization called the House of Concordia, which is basically the House of Commons. But they tie the House of Concordia all the way back to the Interregnum. And it's one of the times where they straight-up acknowledge that during the Interregnum, each little region was ruled differently. Sometimes they were pseudo-feudal organizations. Sometimes they were small democratic ruling councils. Sometimes it just wasn't really a ruling organization. It's just whoever leadership coalesced around. But all of these different organizational structures created a network where they communicated with each other and they coordinated because they had to. And a lot of those changelings, perhaps having been reincarnated a couple times, but those changelings with Remembrance made up the House of Commons, the House of Concordia. And so when the Arcadians fell, the House of Commons stood up and went, cool, we're gonna get shit done. And we're not going to do it according to the structure here, because we don't need to, because technically the doors are closed. And they just started ruling with all of the she there. And it didn't carry the weight of, like, official edict, but they still got shit done. And it's interesting, because this is just one more repeat of this theme of the commoner stepping in and doing better than the she... When the she just throw their hands up in the air and go, oh, God, I just simply couldn't. I'm too delicate. Yet no one ever seems to pick up on that and pursue it. It's another one of those things where if you keep the war in Concordia story, but you have parliament close and then you have a group of ruling commoners who kind of end up in conflict with the rebellious commoners where it's like, okay, yeah, we both kind of want the she to sit down and shut up. We have very different ideas about what that should look like. That creates fantastic, like, pressure and tension between peers that could be a really fun, almost, like, zero-she game. They do this thing there, and they don't really follow that thought all the way to its conclusion. Again, because the plot points I'm bringing up around War and Concordia were retconned for C20— what are your thoughts on that, Simon? Is there any way that you would potentially use that in a
0: game? I have a hard time reconciling that with the way secret societies were used previously, because there are maybe too many secret societies, but there were a few really good commoner ones that came up around war in Concordia and dealing with the need to get shit done, I suppose. A lot of them were reactions to tyranny, uh, usually from the she, but not always, it seemed to me that it was a little bit prescient because if you look at common surveys of generational differences between Americans, one of the things that comes up a lot that is different to previous generations is that millennials and Gen Z, they would really like government to work, but... More often than not, they are totally into volunteering and having nothing to do with government instead of, you know, pursuing getting elected. They just get involved in charities that do the thing they wish the government was doing. The place that the commoner secret societies fill in Warren Concordia just like really elegantly fills that volunteerism instead of governance thing that comes up over and over and over again with the Youngs (laughs) currently (laughs) and the House of Concordia thing I don't quite buy it, I guess but maybe that's because I'm still kind of operating on the old, a 15 person freehold gets representation in parliament so of course there would be commoners in parliament they're just numerically disadvantaged by the system itself so, eh? Changeling has done such a terrible job at letting different localities interact and communicate that like it logically makes sense that something like that would exist. But at the same time, so much of Changeling like resists that sort of thing existing.
1: I don't really know what I would do with it. Well, to put that in context, they don't actually leave that as a hanging thread in the C20 player's guide. They do talk about what does this commoner body of the parliament look like? And they say each kith gets two representatives. I have questions about that, but I like that more than every single freehold gets representation because what is a freehold? It's a very cathane centric especially if you're dealing with a C20-type context where you have non-Arcadian kith, you have so many kith from the rest of the world, and then like do their freeholds get representation and like you would just have way too many people in the body not even just for it to be useful there's kind of a theme with the Parliament of Dreams that is it useful question mark but just like completely and utterly non-organizable like just the level of chaos makes it not work in my head so in that respect, I like the reframe to each kith gets two representatives. That creates a body that is workable. My big question mark there is, what is a kith? Because we have our main kith, that get their two-page write-ups in C20, and then we have all of the many, many other kith in the back of the book. But, question mark that dividing line doesn't exist in the story that's just a matter of resource management in c20 and where where can we put our word count and so not acknowledging those kith that got the big two-page write-up as being part of anything in the universe other than i guess being more common it then becomes well what counts as being kith enough to be in the parliament i also think and this isn't A critique of the writing, but more a question for in 2020, now several years after C20 came out, we're seeing this sudden rise in indigenous representation in the US government. And the parliament of dreams has always kind of been a stand in for that dream, the dream of American rule. And so in a world where we are going to have an indigenous person leading the department of the interior. Oh my god, we have indigenous Congress people. That suddenly opens up both of those models to, alright, if we're really talking about contemporary settings and being a reflection of that in our games, because that's a World of Darkness is, where do the Nunya he sit in all of this? Like, do they? Are we not gonna make that a thing? So changing it to by kith instead of by freehold also kind of opens up That whole question mark, which on the long list of things where the he'd need to be part of the story more, I like it more, but only marginally. But again, it's because the
0: thought wasn't necessarily completed. Yeah, and the other thing they changed for, well, I mean, it's not really even that much of a change, but they introduce a shadow court seat in Parliament as its own thing It's such a strange thing because some of the houses in the Books of Houses are very clearly and explicitly linked with the Shadow Court, and their leaders have seats in Parliament. So there are not very secret Shadow Court seats already, but I guess it's useful to have an explicit shadow court seat instead of a well this person is obviously a member of the shadow court and they have a seat so it is obviously a shadow court seat what do you think of that whole mess? I don't know
1: what I think of that whole mess that seat is depicted differently depending on where you are in the C20 write-up so the way it's initially introduced is there is a seat for every great house those seats appear and disappear as great houses rise and fall it acknowledges that hasn't happened in a while read code for since at least the sundering so the seats are very house centric which does a really weird thing because okay this is america but clearly this is a body that's being treated as before the sundering how does the Galatian Confederation like exist in context with this? How do the the nobles rule, but not really because we're laid back about this? that is Ireland fit and all that? And so there's all that ambiguity, and then we get into this random seat that isn't for a house, and presumably a new seat showed up when House Dannon emerged from their yogurti coma. And then we get another random seat, but no house to take its place, and the shadow court claims it, is the way it's initially introduced. And then later, when they're writing up about the shadow court, they say, yeah, the shadow court is really confused by this whole seat thing, because there's a seat for them, and they preferred to be in the shadows, but now they're not. So it's initially read as something they seized, and like maybe that wasn't what the seat was for, but the dreaming hasn't stopped them, question mark, to... The Dreaming thrust this on them, and it's not what they wanted at all. I dig intentional ambiguity, so I don't, like, totally hate that contradiction. I wish it felt a little more intentional. I wish the first write-up acknowledged the original framing a little more and just went, that's how we played it, but that's not what really happened, and, like, here's the score. Yeek. But okay, that's not that hard to fill in. The thing that's weirder for me is the Shadow Court is not a house. And as you said— some of the original house write ups were basically like, you are Shadow Court. You are all Shadow Court. Balor, Unsealy, that's cute. Shadow Court. Ileal, basically Shadow Court. And so anyone who's sitting in that seat is probably also a member of a great house, and that creates really weird dynamics. And maybe that's good. Maybe that creates tensions. Like, oh, the person sitting in the Shadow Court seat is a member of House Fiona. Well, what does that mean? And like that could create some intrigue and stories, so maybe that's a good thing. But the other part of it is the Shadow Court in C20 is presented as a revolutionary organization that is fighting infiltration by Dark Fae. In C20, you know, it it read a little awkwardly. They weren't separated quite as much, but limited word count. In the C20 Player's Guide, they spend a lot of time to say the rebellion against the structure of fairy society has attracted all of these legitimately revolutionary, egalitarian Fae to the Shadow Court, but then there's the Black Court hidden within them, trying to stay hidden, but they kind of all know the score, and they're fighting for control of this entity. While the idea of here's some power, now you really have something to fight over is kind of an interesting pitch, and I feel like that's sort of what they were setting up. When one half of that internal political war is revolutionary in nature, I have a hard time envisioning them wanting to fight over a seat in Parliament, as granted by the dreaming. Like, oh, we're activists and revolutionary and trying to just undermine... Everything from the outside, like that is the ethos of, I'll say, the not-so-dark-glamour portion of the shadow court, seat in parliament, not high on my priority list. The black court would want it, but they have to be, like, they can't send a Falane to sit in that chair. So then it turns into a lot more of a, like, what does this actually look like? And I can't finish painting that paint-by-numbers picture in my head, if I'm honest.
0: You end up doing this weird thing where you look at what the Shadow Court great House members who have seats in Parliament were doing previously. And, like, I always look at, I can't remember her name, the leader of of House Leonin. And, like, that was the perfect Shadow Court write up for somebody who's in Parliament for me because they go through it and they're like, she does things that help her House. And she does things to monkey wrench Parliament because she thinks it's worthless. But she doesn't do a lot of them. She just does enough of them to make Parliament work a little bit worse. You know, I guess in C20 terms, she would have ended up being Black Court, Shadow Court. I have a hard time imagining her being anything else because of her house and the way she's written. But I agree, you run into this problem because the activist portion of the Shadow Court would absolutely not know what to do with a seated parliament. You'd end up with a situation where whoever sits in that seat is probably instantly going to be blacklisted by literally everything in Concordia because they're shadow courts and they're awful. So eh, it has the potential, but like everything else, it kind of squanders it. Bringing up the houses and that relationship
1: and what you talked about previously with the secret societies, the other big thing that they changed is they introduced banner houses. And banner houses are clearly designed to be the excuse for commoners to choose membership in one of the big story cornerstones of the game. They are sub-houses to the great houses. They have their own banners It says a bunch of them were created during the interregnum. The weird thing about the banner houses is they're clearly meant to fill this niche so commoners can, you know, play the economy of cool and pick the thing that's super special them, the way she get houses. But they still have all the secret societies in the C20 player's guide. And when I read through the politics chapter, I remember just thinking when I first read it, oh man, so many pages of just like three, four paragraph write-ups. There are just so many groups. And it's because you get all these banner houses, which are kind of a cool idea. I sort of wish they weren't tied to the great houses, but commoners being a subdivision of a she organization is a thing that is maybe a personal hang-up. I don't know. But then still also having all the secret societies, I was... Just left feeling like I wanted to take some pruning shears to the whole thing. I know a lot of fans really love the Banner Houses and love that they go all the way back to the Interregnum. Personally, I think that's more a symptom of the secret societies not having previously been leveraged in a focused enough way to be useful. Again, there were just too many of them. If they had been highlighted and emphasized and made part of the canon and given that Sexy feel that the houses had, but more of a commoner thing. I feel like the banner houses wouldn't be as necessary. They might feel like a niche for ennobled commoners, but instead they're just all commoners. What are your thoughts on banner houses? Totally knowing that the two of us are probably not a representative sample of the fan
0: base here, but still. Yeah, yeah. I really like the banner house idea. All it really needs from me is we'll just golden rule away the link to the houses being necessary and change that to being optional, and basically the whole thing's fixed for me. Just make it so that whatever these things are, pseudo-banner houses are... You have enough Fay in the same room with the same goal, and suddenly, you know, you need to have a hierarchy and you need to have an organization, and that's whatever this thing is. That's this pseudo-banner house thing, you know, it's like a viral meme spreading through the world. You end up with potentially having two house Dougals, because canonically, house dougal was maintained by commoners throughout the interregnum. And then the she came back, and apparently everything was cool, so they just, like, took over House Dougal again. Even though what it should have become during the Interregnum should have been basically incompatible with the returning Arcadian sheep. If you break Banner Houses into being potentially linked to Great Houses, but not necessarily linked to Great Houses, you get a whole bunch of weird, cool story diversions you could turn some of the better secret societies into full-on, you know, pseudo-houses or whatever you want to call them. Like, the Urban Renewal League could be one of these things. I don't know why I have an easier time golden ruling this than I do other things in the Player's Guide, but it just seems so logical to me that I'm perpetually shocked they didn't write that. I agree. That fixes most of the problems with the banner houses. The
1: only problem that really remains for me that I don't think is impossible to fix, I think it just takes a little bit more work, is the bloat issue of we have now so many banner houses and you can make up your own. That's very clear. They have a a section for that, which I, I like from a design standpoint. But then you have the secret societies over here that weren't designed with banner houses in mind. And what I wish we had instead is the banner houses with the small tweak Like, you can be, yes, we're a group of commoners associated with Gwydion who protect the great lords. whatever, Whatever loyalist commoner niche you want to create there, there's a space for that. And there isn't a great space before the banner houses for those commoners to organize. Like, you can do all that and that makes sense. And I wish the secret societies were a little more like the conspiracies inside the technocratic union. Where in the technocratic union, you have your five conventions and then you're probably 15-ish divisions within, you know, the financiers, aren't all of the syndicate, etc. You have that. Those are your official groups. But then you have these conspiracies that can't be official. They need to actually be hidden. And a lot of the secret societies, because they were written at a time when the commoners didn't really have... A group they could make a big identity thing out of unless they were so loyalist that they were comfortable just being like, I am Dougal, full stop. Not the most satisfying thing if you don't like the she, which a lot of commoners don't. A lot of the secret societies were kind of written up as, well, this is just a commoner political group. You know, you had the secret societies within the houses. They were a little different. But the ones the commoners were associated with often weren't secrets just really weren't they just didn't have any other heading to put them under and i think when you introduce the banner houses that becomes a problem i feel like if the secret societies were streamlined and redesigned to really be secret and maybe some of them are coordinated groups that include two or three banner houses that have decided to cooperate for something that their she overlords wouldn't appreciate you know Or maybe they're completely independent and they're centered around other political organizations. You know, if you're set, maybe you set your game while the Parliament of Dreams is shut down and it's three or four local commoners running their local fiefdom and that's the center of power for your organization. I think there's a lot of potential there if they're really made secret, if it's not something that you'd wear as a banner and that you'd advertise as part of your identity. There are reasons for both of those things, but they weren't designed together as a holistic setting. And I feel like a lot of pruning and redesign and they could exist next to each other, but that one's not a small lift. That's that feels like to me to be a pretty big lift.
0: You're right. But at the same time, there's that whole subplot with there being Bolorean sleeper agents in all of the great houses, and somehow this is not obvious. Well, I... no, but they're sleeper agents. Yeah, so obviously they don't have their house disfigurement for some reason. You know, it's just one of those things. It's like Dreaming has never been good at consistent meta plot. As much as I want it to be, it never has. So I. You're not wrong. I'll just say that. You're not wrong. (laughs) So the thing with High King David's return and the weird sort of soft rewrite of that and the soft rewrite of how Parliament works, the thing we get that is an honest retcon is what happens to the Eye of Balor opening and the lead-up to the Time of Judgment plot. This is one of those retcons that I actually kind of like, because it does it in a pretty elegant way. They just basically pick up all of that stuff from the Time of Judgment plot, which I've... It's World of Darkness, and for some reason the Time of Judgment thing in every one of their products, I hate. But in C20, they just pick all that stuff up, they scoot it a little bit farther down the timeline, they link it up with... Terrible things happening in the real world, and it has slightly less focus on th- the evil ones returning, whether that's the Antediluvians or the Fomorians or whoever. And in the Dreaming version, that links up with September 11th and the terrorist attack on America, mostly. But all of the things that happen, all the big like story elements are just picked up and put there instead, and I feel like it works better. Because what you end up having is the Adheans still have their weird resurgence thing. The Felain get attached to that, in a way, if you're using them in your game. The Lycaeans are also tied up in that, too. It's all kind of linked up to you know the, the rise of fear and dark emotions in the real world and the real body politic being attractive to these fey. It feels like a more organic reason than The Fomorians woke up, and we need to wrap up this plot.
1: Yeah, I really liked the rewrite of the Adheen and the Thalane. The thing I liked the most is this got rid of all vestiges of the Thalane are banal, because that was totally a thing for the longest time. The Fomorians are banal, the Thalane are banal. They're born of the Dreaming, and we're not going to explain what that means. Okay. Originally, that was written in, if you go back to the first edition books, because they were trying to make a connection between the Fomorians and the Fomori from Werewolf. It was a very clear connection, invoking Werewolf directly, and Shining Host, and maybe even the first edition core book. Might have to go back and look. They discarded that at some point, but there was so much word count acknowledging that basically Dark Fae were banal, that they, I guess, didn't feel comfortable retconning it and didn't know what to do with it. And in C20, they just went, that's dumb. You're still of the dreaming. We're going to make the difference different. And I like the idea of Dark Glamour in the framing where Banality is personal. You do still have space for, say, a svartalfar being banal to a high sea she who's totally wrapped up in noblesse oblige. Like there is still room for that tension, but it becomes about the conflict between the fey identities and not just the svartalfar is just banal because Thalane. I think it's much more elegant. I think it makes the adheen make a bit more sense and. I really liked what they did with the Lykeans. you can listen to our C20 Player's Guide Review for a lot of detail there, but the Lycaeans show up amidst all these other Dark Fae, and they're really kind of neutral. They're not Dark, but they have this tendency to like, flip over to Dark, they're just kind of untapped potential in terms of what could they be. That poses some really interesting philosophical questions that you can dig into in Changeling, so, you know, if you use that, I think that's really engaging. They did whole hog bring the Red Star into the 9-11 story. They talk a little bit about all the horrible things that happened in the 90s leading up to it. wasn't just a single event. It was the world was primed for this thing. This just happened to be the moment where we tipped over. I like that framing. It doesn't put too much emphasis on 9-11. And they used it as a reason to also expand the Thelane. Significantly and give them a redesign. I don't think they nailed every kith, but as a whole, the thalane feel like a complete thought now, which I appreciate. There's just a lot more variety to work with. So I like the Evanescence. I think it's probably from a story standpoint, one of the best things in C20 for me.
0: I remember there being a little blip in the thalane discussion where I think they mentioned that. You know, the Thalane were never part of the Changeling way before. Now, how has this happened? They're very confused about this. That little detail is just... It's very nice to have it called out as an in-world mystery instead of the way Dreaming normally does these things, where it's like, no, we're not going to talk about that. Nobody thinks this is weird. What are you talking about? It's not a contradiction. It's just so much about the Evanescence versus you know, the old Shadow Court book or versus the Darkkin book, where it's like, it's so much more compact and that forced them to do a much better, much more concise job with it, I think.
1: The other thing they did that I think was really kind of a coup in restructuring things is they disconnected the Unseelie from darkness. Almost entirely. I mean, it used to be... The Thelaine were terrible because they had two Unseelie legacies, and they got rid of that. And now the Thelaine have a Nightmare legacy, which is totally different from sealer or Unseelie. And they have another legacy that can be Seelie. They opened the door for, say, a Svartalfar that takes one of the hardcore leadership, order-oriented Seelie legacies and a Nightmare legacy. And really, that's not a hard thought experiment to get to the end of. And I really liked that. Unfortunately, in the C20 Player's Guide, I don't think they walk that back. I think they just assigned some sections of the book to people and didn't really point out that they needed to continue that design principle because the dark glamour unseely thing gets reintroduced in some of the stuff in the C20 Player's Guide. I just write that off as an accident. I give precedence to the core book here. But while that's mostly manifest through system as opposed to expressed narratively, it does have a huge metaplot impact in terms of the role that the Fellain play in society. And I, I think it was a really good move. So that's really a list of the primary changes that happened in C20 and sort of our general thoughts on them. When talking about alternate canon, things that deviate from the main line, we also really need to talk about the recently released By Night Studios changeling book. They went a very different route with their canon. So they actually start before Kingdom of Willows. High King David does not disappear in their canon. They have a history that, as we talked about in the BNS review episode, is very similar to the existing line, probably more true to it than anything else we've read. And then they reach this point where they deviate, and they say the Fomorians were warring in the Dreaming. High King David talked a bunch of changelings into following him into battle and putting the Fomorians down. He was ambushed on his way and killed, and so the High King is dead. The Shadow Court moves in and takes control when that happens. So this isn't one seat and everyone else is still running things. Basically, the Shadow Court has a military coup, and it works, and everything is thrown to the ground. They also take not so much a rewrite approach to the Shadow Court. They actually go back to the original Shadow Court thought experiment. In the original first edition Shadow Court book, the opening fiction basically says the Shadow Court is pro-banality. Wrap yourself in banality to survive the long winter. And that's just kind of left there, and it doesn't really make sense. Why would that work for Changeling? And they don't address it in the main text of the book. It's just kind of in this opening. It gets touched on here or there when people talk about the Shadow Court in later books in the line, but really no consistency is ever maintained there. And so what BNS did is they made the case that the Shadow Court is pro-winter because if you don't have winter, spring will never come and clinging desperately to Autumn isn't doing anyone any favors. So they overthrow the Seely and the Unseely that are taking part in rulership, and they take over. It's an interesting approach. There are a number of other things that go on, but just from the point of view of that pitch, what are your thoughts on that, Simon.
0: I like that it gives the Shadow Court a motivation that isn't entirely we're going to hoard glamour and then kill all the dreamers which is kind of what their old motivation was, you know, except for House Baylor where they're like no, we just really hate the Tuatha and we're 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 willing to take ourselves out to murder them. I, I like bad guys that are simple, but that's a little too simple. The thing I really like about the Vineight Studios canon is They just went full-on with it, where the C20 canon breaks off into this weird status quo uber alles kind of stance that I just don't find terribly interesting. BNS goes into, like, no, this is the end of the world. Politics is going to strangle everything. Milgi wins. You just have fun trying to survive that. I really enjoy that about Dreaming. It really reinforces the banality is going to get ya theme for me. That said, the thing they did with the High King is so upsetting, I keep forgetting that was what they decided. Because it just reads like, okay, we're going to take the High King, he's going to put together all the best and brightest of Concordia, and we're going to fire them into the sun because that's inconvenient for these people to exist in our plot. Maybe they went from outline to publish on that one. I mean, the book did have a really tortured development cycle, but it just, there are so many better ways to do that, you know?
1: I attended the Alpha playtest at Midwinter a few years ago, and that's where they introduced the High King David died with his entourage while going through the Dreaming, and I liked that story. I was sort of curious at the time, oh, did he come back and then he died? I wonder what the details will be. And they avoided that by getting rid of the kidnapping. Again, I I don't think that's a terrible choice, actually. If you want to go to where they ended up being, navigating the whole kidnapping three queens thing introduces a lot of complexity that I wouldn't want to unravel, given their design goals. But when I got to the final book, and it was just like, oh, the Fomorians are warring, and that's why he did it. I was really like, ah, I like the him dying in the Dreaming thing, but could we have a plot point with a little more relatability as to why he was there? Like, he was lured there by the Shadow Court. It was all part of their plot. We could wrap that in some unreliable narrator. You know, there are lots of things you could do that then your characters would have an anchor in and care about. We went off to fight the Green Court and stop the White Court from rising. Is just... Well, you know how we feel about the Fomorian courts. They're not that relatable. Sorry. I was a little disappointed by that as well. There's some other things that they did that are more game designy, but they do have a canon impact in a pretty substantial way. The biggest one being that you no longer have both courts within you. Whatever court was ascendant when glamour fell, when winter really came and hit everyone hard becomes your court and they leave a little bit of a window open for you can change courts but it's not a thing that just happens it's something you have to devote yourself to it's a big effort sort of like going from sabbat to cam that is a thing that's going to take a lot of work and effort that was mostly a larp decision that was about creating clean political conflicts that can be used in a setting i get that but writing it in is something that happened when Winter fell, as opposed to retconning and saying this is the way it's always been, creates some really interesting stories that they maybe didn't tap specifically because they were just trying to like clear complications away. But it's a set of complications that I kind of like. And I feel like it's something you could choose to use in a specific alternate canon tabletop game as well. What do you think about that change and how applicable it may or may not be to tabletop?
0: I've always been kind of dissatisfied with the way the courts work in Dreaming, and C20 didn't really help. It made some tweaks around the edges that helped, but fundamentally, I've always wanted the courts to be more... You have both of them all the time, and you have to deal with it all the time, and you might emphasize one aspect of your personality more than the other. You might be ashamed of one more than the other, so you might like overcorrect. But I think going with you just have one and that's it, it doesn't appeal to me. I get why they did it for LARP, because you need things to be a little bit simpler so you can be a little bit faster and a little bit bit less DM-heavy for LARP, but it took it in a direction that isn't my thing. I do like that the courts are mostly a political sort of thing now, but I don't know. I I have mixed feelings, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's completely fair. And I agree with you in terms of I like the complexity of the courts. For me, I guess the thing I find interesting, which again they didn't emphasize in BNS, is I find the idea of role-playing through having lost that part of your identity interesting. Especially if it's a part of your identity you were ashamed of, and that's why it was your passive court. But now that it's gone, you miss it. And I... Like, I don't know how to tap that, but that I actually think is an interesting idea. In terms of the general ongoing status quo, the courts are only political. Again, it works in LARP. I wouldn't do that for most of my changeling games, but it could be interesting maybe in tabletop to have like a localized area that was just slammed by banality, experienced a winter, and all the changelings there were even further diminished, and this happened and maybe your characters are all normal changelings with two courts, and you have to like watch them deal with that trauma. Like, I, I wouldn't want to implement it quite the way it's implemented in BNS, but I feel like there is an interesting story there in a different setting used in a different way.
0: It's kind of a place where, as difficult as like the political impulses are to deal with, it's one of those places where, because now it's less of a game design thing and more of a, a flavor thing, you could get into... What does it mean to have once had a political impulse but now you don't? Because the courts the courts were diminished, really. I mean, as a as a part of your personality that got truncated so you could fit in the world as it exists now kind of a thing. I don't know if that's a thing to deal with in meta though. It seems like a really easy way to get into the standard this is a morality system sort of problem that role-playing games have. Yeah, and
1: if there's one thing I don't ever need in my life, it's a new morality system in an RPG. So that's totally fair. The other thing they did that kind of relates to everything we talked about earlier is they got rid of the Parliament of Dreams. And it's just a sidebar, but the Shadow Court basically said, nope, we're closing up shop, no Parliament of Dreams for you. They devote some word count to people accuse them of just getting rid of the only political entity that could stop them. And is it well-intentioned? Is it not? But they end it with the shadow court basically having brought forward the laundry list of parliament fuck-ups, which for anyone who's followed the canon knows is not short. The parliament has basically never done anything right, which is kind of the whole point of that. House of Commons taking over while the she disappear and actually getting things done for a change, like it's where those stories come from. And then they basically go back to the interregnum setting where there are all of these little local fiefdoms and courts and things play out in a much more disconnected manner. But there is a lot of cooperation and they even see this little thing about there might be a new unified entity that grows out of that and maybe it could actually be democratic and not just a rehash of feudalism. And the thing that I find kind of... Intriguing about that approach, aside from just the fact that it's a hey, we might have a spring after this winter. They have to have a few hope carrots scattered among the despair because it is changeling and we need hope to make it work. Having that disconnected fiefdom structure with the she still around but reduced is kind of interesting because the way the interregnum is described in C20 is the autumn she. Were willing to cooperate with the commoners a little bit more as peers. You know, they talk about the interregnum and the predecessor to the Society of of Concordia in the C20 Player's Guide, and they make it pretty clear the Autumn She played basically a peer role. But the She, as they're described in BNS, are not that. They are full Arcadian She who have gone through the changeling way because again they just wanted to get rid of some complexity. But they are still ruling, feudal, authoritarian dickbags, or at least there's a good swath of them who are. And so having this disconnected fiefdom situation with that added in, opens up some really interesting local wars and conflicts that really tap the social stuff and Changeling I like the most. I dig those conflicts. And I don't know if that was done intentionally, Or if they were just trying to think of how can we create a good framework to build ongoing LARP chronicles. Okay, this gives you your nice local structure and you can have control and you don't have to be so dependent on what's happening at the the league level. Because the Parliament of Dreams is a bit of a problem in like a National League game because they would hold a lot of influence technically. So I understand getting it away for design reasons. But I find the actual story dynamics that opens up really interesting and surprisingly things that Changeling hasn't really tapped previously.
0: It opens things up in a really weird way because I think it's like less than a paragraph description of how like the interregnum worked somewhere in some book. But I remember there being a discussion about essentially turf wars trying to unite what did they call it, the Confederation of the Turtle before Concordia existed and how none of these efforts at regional rule ever like managed to do that or managed to survive the death of the person who was ruling. I always found that way more interesting than Concordia. And this feels more like that. I remember reading the BNS book, and I think my note on that whole discussion was, oh, we're going to have gang wars now. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, and that's very LARP, especially because in most big LARP leagues, all right, I live in Chicago, that's great, I go to my monthly Chicago game, and the story continues, and I can also just show up in Indianapolis and walk in and show my league card, and I pay my annual dues, and here's my character sheet, it's on file and approved, I'm going to play in your game this month, and that's part of the LARP dynamic. Having these separate fiefdoms that are loosely politically affiliated, but probably not really, especially if maybe Indianapolis is run by an incredibly high feudal loyalist and Chicago is every man for himself, liberty or die, and there are reputations there that build within the league, that emphasizes some really fun conflicts. And I'm going to show up and immediately have fights and characters that care about me being there and have preconceptions, which, you know, biases are bad until you need to show up at a game where no one knew you were going to be there and you want to have a story to engage with. And suddenly biases are very useful. So I really like it from a LARP structure. I don't know how likely it is, but I kind of hope a large multi-city venue for this game ends up opening at some point.
0: And it's one of the more tabletop-ready sorts of things for people who are willing to write their own setting, which I feel like is most people who storytell changeling. <laughs> well, necessity is the mother of invention. I want to thank you for joining us for our slightly rambling discussion of an extremely rambling topic, the multiple different canons that Dreaming is coping with in the modern era I hope something in here was useful, at least to inspire you to go maybe read some of these things yourselves and be angry at us for getting some of it wrong. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for walking away from Arcadia.